0: See this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. I and today we are going to be talking about the history of the Word of Wisdom. That was not my original intent. What I meant to do, and this is the fun thing about Mormon history, is you start going down one rabbit hole and you find 400 other rabbit holes. This is the exciting part about Mormon history. So here I am thinking... There's some really cool stories about some immigrant families in Mormonism, like the Danish, uh, German families, Swedish families. And we don't often hear their stories because when they first came, some of them were not English-speaking. So I'm doing some research there, and I find this really prominent German family, the Nagel family. Um, They were actually the Nail family, and they changed their name um, to Americanize it, so Nagel to Nail. N-A-I-L-E. I I come from German descent. We have uh, Weiss in our family, W-E-I, and then the Umlau. But we Americanized it and call it Weiss. So, I mean, I don't know why none of these sound Americanized to me now. But uh, this is the family I start looking at. So this guy is a prominent polygamist. He has six wives. All the wives seem to relatively get along. One of the wives leaves because she can't handle the principle of plural marriage, but remains on good terms with the family, and she gets, goes on and marries a monogamist and still interacts with the family. So I'm reading about this family, and then I find out that this family has this huge vineyard, and they're growing wine for the prophet, and so I get chased down this rabbit hole. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Nagel family, and we're also going to talk about the Word of Wisdom because I've been meaning to incorporate that, and I feel like this is a great place to do that. Claire Barris, who has been on the podcast before, has been really generous. He shared his notes with me. I'm going to link to his website. He does uh, the website, you know, that shows each day in Mormon history something that has happened. He's really great. He gave me his timeline on the Word of Wisdom and said, "Do what you will with it." So. I'm going to go through this timeline of the Word of Wisdom and then we're going to talk about the Nagel family. But the Word of Wisdom is really, really important. For those who are non-Mormon and listening to this, this is kind of Mormonism's health code. And the way that I grew up culturally as an LDS girl, we didn't drink alcohol, we didn't drink coffee, and we didn't drink tea. And that was about it. I mean, there's other things in the Word of Wisdom, but that's kind of our interpretation of it. In fact, uh. I remember, you know, I have three children and when I gave birth, I had three cesarean operations to give birth and they will give you tea after the operation to sort of help help relieve the swelling and things like that. And I remember I was 23 years old with my first baby, completely overwhelmed, very hormonal, and they bring in this glass of tea the doctor does and i and i have this moment of like temptation we have this apocryphal story in mormonism that's sort of rooted in truth and sort of not where joseph smith our early prophet has this surgery on his leg and he's given alcohol and he refuses alcohol which is such a silly story because we know that joseph drank all of his life but for me growing up we were taught that story like See, he was like going to get his leg amputated and he didn't even drink alcohol. So, Lindsay, you don't have to drink tea when you're in the hospital. So this nurse brings in this tea and I'm thinking like, what do I do? I know it's herbal. I know some LDS people drink herbal, but like I'm a really good Mormon and I don't drink herbal tea. So I refused the tea. That was that was my moment of righteousness. But I'm going to back up in a minute, and I'm going to tell this history and we're going to focus on the overall origins of Mormonism. And then we're going to focus more into the LDS part of the Word of Wisdom because it does impact the way that some fundamentalists live it. And then we're going to kind of cover some of the ways that fundamentalists live the Word of Wisdom. So as Clara Barris' wont to do, he backs all the way up to the 1600s and he cites on his draft, which I'm going to link, which is really great, that March 5th, 1623... One of the first early American colonies, the Virginia Colony, enacts the first American temperance law. So they have a law. So this idea that alcohol can be dangerous is not old. I mean, humans have been making wine and beer as long as they've figured out that they could do it. And some people abuse it. And that causes problems. So in the early colonies, they tried to enact this law. So temperance was around for a while. These ideas start becoming part of American psyche, especially Western culture, because it's seen as something that, you know, if you do it in too much excess, then you're a drunkard. Now, in, 17, in 1784, a man named Benjamin Rush Starts this new temperance revival. He writes uh, a book, call, a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Body and Mind. And it talked about the excessive use of alcohol and how it affected your physical and psychological health. After he wrote this inquiry, about 200 farmers in Connecticut form a temperance association in 1789 and they ban the making of whiskey. Sort of takes off, and in, in the early eighteen hundreds, different organizations form it, and temperance now becomes popular fad. It becomes a movement, and the idea wasn't abstinence; it was drinking in moderation, for the most part. You know, early Americans like Lyman Beecher, the Connecticut minister, he started lecturing and preaching against the effects of liquor as early as 1825. And so this is important because Joseph Smith, we've talked about this before, but he is influenced largely by, you know, larger political movements, social movements in the United States. So this is going to influence how he is informed by this. The American Temperance Society was formed in 1826. And within 12 years, I guess it had more than 8,000 local groups and over 4 million members. They were publishing 18 different kinds of temperance journals by the early 1830s. And it really gets picked up by women. Women start this is sort of I say like an early um, breed of the women's rights movement because women know that uh, you know excessive alcohol leads to spousal abuse and unemployment and health problems, and women get impacted by how their partners are abusing alcohol, right? They're, if their husband is out of work, oftentimes women have no choice but to go sink down with a ship. So women start forming these societies too and leading the way, and it's seen as sort of this popular, this popular movement to do. Now, of course, all is going well until the Civil War that's going to change things. But in this climate, in this scenario, is when... Mormonism is starting to take seed. As early as 1814, Sidney Rigdon and his wife and daughter moved from Pittsburgh to Washington County and they operate their own temperance tavern. In 1817, Joseph Smith senior Joseph Smith's father opens a cake and beer shop in Palmyra and in it, he sells gingerbread pies, boiled eggs, root beer, and other like notions of traffic, and peddles these on the streets from a handcart during Independence Day and on military training days. So we know that the Smith family was really always struggling with poverty. They were always coming up with a new scheme. So one of the schemes that Joseph Smith Sr. tries in 1817, and of course this is early on in his life, is to open up this cake and beer shop. During 18 the 1819 through 1820s, Joseph Smith Jr., you know, the founder of Mormonism, he actually works as a clerk for the peddling of cake and beer on public occasions, and sometimes is duped into accepting counterfeit coins from other youth. So he sort of cuts his teeth on this, and I like this story. This is so relatable to me because this this isn't the same, but as a youth, we would sell donuts and soda pop, you know, In our neighborhood on the street for people going to work. It was just kind of a fun way to make money. And Joseph Smith had a similar experience peddling cake and beer. On September 21st, 1823, Joseph has a change of heart and prays for forgiveness for his foolish errors and weaknesses of youth. And this is when it said he's visited three times during the night by an angel named Moroni. This is where the angel Moroni tells him about a hidden book and quotes scriptures from the books of Act, Joel, Isaiah, and Malachi. Moroni's quotation of Malachi is recorded as D&C 2. According to Joseph Smith's neighbor's later testimony, Joseph's weaknesses of youth consisted of fighting and drinking. Uh, And we know this. We talked about William Smith and many of their family scraps, but Joseph, Joseph knew how to throw a punch in his early days. In February 13th of 1826, the first American Temperance Society was founded in Boston, which we just talked about. And this is the one, you know, with millions of members. By fall of it, and just so you know, Claire notes around 1.5 million members. And I saw a different source uh, that notes up to 4.5 million members. So it was big. Millions of people. Fall of 1827, according to to contemporaries of Joseph Smith, notorious wags William T. Hussey and Azel Van Druver visit the Smith home and say they are willing to view the golden plates, taking upon them the risk that they would be struck dead if they saw them. They observe something, quote, concealed under a piece of thick canvas. That's how they see the plates. After Hussey moves a canvas and sees only a tile brick, Smith claims to have pulled a joke on the men. With the customary whiskey hospitalities, the affair ended in good nature. So these men come in and say, "We want to see the golden plates," and Joseph shows them a brick. Um, that can be interpreted by a lot of a lot of different ways, but it was all fixed with whiskey in the end. During 1828, alcohol destroys the individual. Until this is a quote from the Temperance by Lyman Beecher: Alcohol destroys the individual until all that was once lovely and of good report retires and leaves the wretch abandoned to the appetites of a ruined animal. The sea has made a clear breach over him and is swept away forever. Whatsoever things are pure and lovely and of good report. This is language that shows up in our Mormon articles of faith. And this actually comes from Lyman Beecher in his six sermons on nature, occasion, signs, evils, and remedy of temperance. So it's very possible that Joseph Smith, who is familiar with these documents and these sermons, you know, is influenced by these lines that say, Whatsoever things are pure and lovely and of good report. Around June or a little bit later in 1829, Oliver Cowdery receives a revelation called the Articles of the Church of Christ about, quote, how he should build up his church in the manner thereof, and it discusses the ordination of priests and teachers and calls members to meet regularly to partake of bread and wine. That's something a lot of early Mormons don't think about, that the sacrament was used with bread and wine, and we're gonna. that's going to get fun in just a second. August 1st through the 7th of 1830, the word of wisdom starts percolating. This is what Joseph Smith says. Newell Knight and his wife paid us a visit at our place in Harmony. Neither his wife nor mine had been as yet confirmed, and it was proposed that we should have sacrament together and confirm them before he and his wife should leave us. In order to prepare for these things, I set out to go procure some wine for the occasion. I had, however, gone but a short distance when I was met by a heavenly messenger and had the following revelation: DNC twenty-seven, the first paragraph of which was written at this time, and the remainder in September following. Agreeable to this revelation, we prepared some wine of our own make and held our meeting, which consisted only of five Newell Knights and wife, myself and wife, and John Whitmer. We partook together. Of the sacrament, which we confirmed the two sisters into the church and spent the evening in a glorious manner. The Spirit of the Lord was poured out on us, and we praised God and rejoiced exceedingly. That same month, that this first sacrament is offered in 1830, the Journal of Health, which uh, was this journal published semi monthly in Philadelphia, concludes a year-long series of articles that denounce the use of ardent spirits, tobacco, tea, and coffee in the strongest terms. It claims, quote, the most deadly of all poisons, the Prussic acid, has been detected in green tea. It also advises, quote, a substitution almost entirely of vegetable and animal substances, end quote. So again, these substances or the science about tea is coming from early 19th century Science, which of course modern science has a different take on. Now let's move to December 27, 1832. This is when we're dealing with the section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants in Kirtland. The salutation recorded in DNC 88 133 was given each time the group of Mormons came together. The, a teacher would quote, saluted the brethren with uplifted hands as they came in. Remembered Zebedee Coltrane, one of the original school, and they answered with the uplifted hand. Coltrane also stated, before going to school, we washed ourselves and put on clean linen. Members of the school came fasting at sunrise and normally continued until near 4 p.m. So, Men come in to the Kirtland Temple, they give the salutation, they're washed and put on clean linen, and the sacrament was administered at times when Joseph appointed after the ancient order, that is, warm bread to break easy was provided and broken into pieces as large as a fist, and each person had a glass of wine. At the conclusion of the meeting, the scholars were dismissed following a prayer with uplifted hands. So Joseph now is starting to administer the sacrament more publicly, but it's at the time, it's like a big chunk of bread and a glass of wine. I'm sure church was really fun in those times. In February of 1833, the May issue of the American Quarterly Temperance magazine reports, quote, Simultaneous temperance meetings by various temperance societies were held across the nation. So again, this movement is still very popular in the early 1830s. In uh, the next day, in 1833, health guidelines with promise of health, wisdom, and deliverance appear from the destroying angel to Joseph Smith, and this becomes DNC 89. And uh, we have this, this story of Brother Coltrane that says, when the word of wisdom was first presented by the prophet Joseph, as he came out of the translating room and was read to the school, there were 20 out of the 21 who used tobacco, and they all immediately threw the tobacco and the pipes into the fire. The same month that the Temperance Society is talking about these meetings, Joseph Smith is clearly impacted by this. In May of the same year, 1833, um, we have this quote. We arrived at Kirtland, Ohio, having traveled 500 miles. And the next day, we hired a house in the city of Brother Joseph Coe and moved into it. Brother Cousin Joseph took Brother Brown's family home with him. His wife asked Sister Brown if she would like a cup of tea or coffee after her long journey. In a few days, they settled in company with Elder Joseph H. Wakefield. They purchased a large wagon and settled in, contrary to the counsel of the prophet, and they afterwards apostatized, assigning a reason the prophet's wife had offered them coffee and tea, which was contrary to the word of wisdom. And they had actually seen Joseph the prophet come down out of the translating room and go play with the children, end quote. So these are uh, some people talking about... Just a few months after this word of wisdom was given, Joseph Smith and his wife even are drinking coffee and tea, so people don't know how to grapple with this. Is it, is it a guideline? Is it literal? But people apostatize over that. There seems to be some confusion because in July 10th of 1833, Joseph Smith clarifies to the saints that the hot drinks spoken in the word of wisdom include tea and coffee, So, you know, people are starting to talk about what does this mean? The word of wisdom is important. How does it affect temperance? How how are we supposed to live it? At this time, the American temperance movement, um, William Alcott writes in the Young Man's Guide to, quote, resolve yourselves to free from slavery to tea and coffee. Experience has taught me that they are injurious to health. I do say that to pour down regularly every day, A quarter or two of warm liquid, whether under the name of tea, coffee, soup, grog, or anything else, is greatly injurious to health. End quote. So this is also an understanding. We see it happening in other cultures in uh, the world, too. For example, a lot of uh, Chinese cultures believe that you couldn't mix hot beverages with cold food or vice versa. Because your system couldn't take the hot and the cold. And here we have Americans saying... You know, drinking hot liquid can't be good for you. Alcott also warns of the dangers of tobacco and suggests that the, the judicious consumption of fruits in the summer and encourages a moderate consumption of spirits. He says, quote, "...be not too hasty of meats, for excess of meats bringeth sickness. Show not the valiantness in wine, for wine hath destroyed many." There are so many reasons for early rising that I can persuade the reader to go to bed early. I shall have little fear of his lying late in the morning. So again, you know, it's easy to understand why the word of wisdom comes about the way that it does. Joseph Smith was a very, had a very curious mind and other people, including Emma, would have been attracted to these social movements. So they're keeping up on the latest science at the time. And this is, this is the reasoning and the thinking of the time. In February of 1834, the Kirtland Council would meet at Joseph Smith's house. Joseph, quote, went on to give us a revelation of a situation at the time he obtained the record, the persecution he met, and company. He also told us of his transgression at the time he was translating the Book of Mormon. Council minutes go on to say, quote, The case of Brother Martin Harris, against whom certain charges were preferred by Brother Sidney Rigdon, were presented. One was that he told A.C. Russell that Joseph drank too much liquor when he was translating the Book of Mormon and that he wrestled with many men and threw them. Brother Martin said he did not tell Russell that Brother Joseph drank too much liquor while translating the Book of Mormon, but this thing took place before the Book of Mormon was translated. So, of course, there are these rumors that Joseph was drinking while he was translating that same month in 1834, Joseph clarifies the word of wisdom again. He says, quote, no official member in this church is worthy to hold an office after having the words of wisdom properly taught to him and he, the official member, neglecting to comply with or obey them. So, again, people who were drinking into excess, Joseph realized was a liability and they didn't want them to hold an office in the church. By April fifth, eighteen thirty-four, John Johnson petitions the Court of Common Pleas in Chardon for a license to maintain a tavern in Kirtland, and Joseph testifies on his behalf. So this might seem like contradictory, but again, we're talking about temperance. We're not talking about prohibition. We're saying that they would have understand understood that you do things in moderation, you do not do them in excess. In 1837, a committee was appointed to, quote, see if he would desist from selling spiritous liquors to those who were in the habit of getting intoxicated and report to the authorities of the church those members who might drink spirits at this house. Unfortunately, this thing sort of takes a mind of its own. This is a hot political issue, and different people are interpreting it in different ways, and you're going to have dogmatic people take it one way, and, you know, addicts take it another way. And Joseph Smith is trying to maneuver all of this. But we do know that Joseph Smith liked wine and liquor. That's, that's undisputed. July 7th of 1834, Orson Pratt records in his journal that the High Council established according to the pattern given by our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, sending a greeting. Dear brethren, we have appointed our beloved brother and Companion in tribulation, John Coral, to meet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. He, in connection with others, also duly appointed, will visit you alternately for the purpose of instructing you in the necessary qualifications of the Latter day Saints, that they may be perfected, that the officers and members of the body of Christ may become very prayerful and very faithful, strictly keeping all the commandments and walking in holiness before the Lord continually that all mean to have the destroyer pass over them as the children of Israel and not slay them, may live according to the word of wisdom, that the saints by industry, diligence, faithfulness, and the prayer of faith may become purified and enter upon their inheritance to build up Zion according to the word of the Lord. End quote. In October of 1834, Aurelia S. Rogers um, would join the church with her family and they moved to Nauvoo when she was seven. <sighs> Aurelia learned to smoke a pipe at her grandmother's knee, but finally responded to a quote monitor within that told me it was wrong and it would lead to if it persisted in, I should be if I lived an old lady smoker. This thought disgusted me for I never liked to see women smoke. End quote. So again, this is a cultural thing and we have to have it in the context of the time. There weren't any, you know, cigarette ads you know, on TV where we could shape the discourse. Of course, there were advertisements published in journals, but this is something on people's mind. They understand the utility of these substances, but they also understand well enough the dangers. December of 1834, Hiram Smith gets a patriarchal blessing by Joseph Smith Sr. And it says, quote, Hiram, thou art my oldest son, whom the Lord has spared unto me. Thou has always stood by thy father and reached forth the helping hand to lift him up when he was in affliction, and though he has been out of the way through wine, thou has never forsaken nor laughed him to scorn. For all these kindnesses to the Lord, my God, will bless thee. End quote. Apparently, Hiram had some, you know, issues with wine during 1834. Brother Elazar Miller with some half a dozen others joined the company with three horses about noon a little east of Rochester. These men and their horses are afflicted in the changing climate and country, and they're hungry, and they're eating dry corn, and they get colic. So these th- this early company of horses come in, and they decide to give them medicine with whiskey. And so these are early saints who Give us a recipe for whiskey. So here's the, here's the dose for colic for horses. A dose of medicine mixed in a quart store bottle prepared as follows. A three-penny paper of tobacco, half an ounce of capuras, and two tablespoons full of cayenne pepper, and the bottle filled with water. When he could not procure whiskey, one half a bottle constituted a dose and would almost invariably cure a sick horse in a few minutes and is worthy of remembrance. So this is medicine that they would have given horses. At the same time, Joseph Smith is being accused by Martin Harris and the Martin Harris tried in the Kirtland Council for accusing Joseph Smith of not understanding the Book of Mormon, wrestling too much and drinking while translating the Book of Mormon. Martin confessed that his mind had been darkened so that he said these things inadvertently. We also know that in the 1834, several members are tried for infractions of the Word of Wisdom, but they are forgiven. Like Leonard Rich, who had an infraction, we don't know what the infraction was, but he was forgiven. We have some meetings from or minute meetings from March 29, 1834, meeting in the Kirtland Temple, where Joseph Smith and four counselors meet quote in most holy place in the Lord's house and sought for revelation for from Him to teach us concerning our going to Zion. After uniting in prayer three times, they called the other presidents, the two bishops, and their councils, each to stand in their place and fast the day and night. The word of the Lord comes through Joseph Smith that those who had entered into the holy place mo- must not leave the house until morning. We must cleanse our feet and partake of the sacrament. Accordingly, we proceeded and cleansed our faces and feet, and then we proceeded to wash each other's feet end quote Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith wash each other's feet in this in the Kirtland Temple after which Sidney Rigdon washes Joseph Smith's senior's feet and Hiram Smith's feet Joseph Smith washes Frederick G. Williams feet and then Hiram Smith washes David Whitmer's and Oliver Cowdery's feet so there's a whole lot of feet washing going on and right after they take They partake of this bread and wine after fasting all day. They stay in the temple all through the night. And I don't know if you've been in the Kirtland Temple at night, but it is beautiful. It's hauntingly angelic. You know, the light comes through the moon through this glass and just puts shadows on the wall. It's, It's phenomenal. So I can only imagine what that felt like fasting all day, having these sacred ordinances, and then having a big glass of wine. And I'm going to speculate that they had probably more than just a glass of wine. They probably had a few glasses of wine to break their fast. By 1835, we see an excommunication for breaking the word of wisdom. Um, At a conference in Freedom, New York, Elder Chester L. Heath, a member of the Avon Genicio Church, is excommunicated for breach of covenant and not observing observing the word of wisdom. Sidney Rigdon was presiding over this meeting. May 11th of 1835, the branch of Leona was represented by Elder Edmund Fisher, one of the number of disciples being 20 in good standing, but rather low in spirit in consequence of neglect to keep the word of wisdom. So the saints are trying, they're trying to incorporate in this culture temperance, but they're struggling. They're really struggling. We have several more accounts, and you can see these in Claire Barris' timeline of people, you know, breaking the word of wisdom and being tried for it. For example, Alman Babbitt, he broke the word of wisdom, and his defense for being tried was, well, Joseph Smith does it too, so why am I doing this? And um, he was admonished to live it anyway. (laughs) At the same time, you know, we talk about, Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack, being an herb, an herb doctor. So she would gather herbs and make teas and tinctures and things like that to heal. This wouldn't have been un- uncommon for a lot of people on the frontier to sort of take medicine into their own hands. We know that Joseph Smith Sr. gets very sick. He's given some mild herbs. Um, he gets sicker still. He has a fever, and Joseph Smith Jr. gives him mild herbs. And when they have no effect... Joseph tries to rebuke the disease with a blessing and that seemed to help. We also have other instances where Joseph starts using or continues to use alcohol and herbs and tinctures to cure people. Uh, Samuel Brannan had a swollen left arm and they made a poultress of herbs and applied it to help him. Um, so this this was how early... Americans would have understood medicine. Alcohol really helped with that. Claire has a really interesting note um, that comes from December 26, 1835, and this is the preparation for the Kirtland Endowment. So Joseph Smith is also, now he's working on ordinances, right? We He has done the sacrament, uh, there's a process for it, and now he's giving instructions on how you can prepare for your endowment. And these instructions are intended to sanctify the individual, to prepare them to be holy. And these, these are a list of some of the things they had to do. Quote, number one, confessing the sins and asking forgiveness. Number two, covenanting to be faithful to God. Number three, having one's body washed and bathed with cinnamon perfumed whiskey. Number four, washing one's own body with pure water and perfume. Number five, having one's head anointed with holy oil. Number six, having the anointing blessing sealed with uplifted hands. The sealing blessing consisting of three parts, a solemn prayer, a sealing prayer, and the Hosanna Hosanna shout. And number seven, washing of faces and feet and partaking of the Lord's Supper. So to prepare for the endowment, alcohol is used a few times. They would bathe in cinnamon whiskey. My understanding is it's not like a tub of complete whiskey, but they would um, do kind of like a sponge bath, like, like we see in similar endowments today. It was a way to purify. Again, they knew enough to know that alcohol was uh, something that could help cleanse. And then after all this, they washed their feet, just like we heard about with Joseph Smith, and they partake of the Lord's Supper, which, of course, is wine and bread. Joseph would continue to do this ceremony with people that were close to him, high up in leadership. They would do this endowment. They would have this special meeting. And they would be washed and prepared in this way, and then they would conclude with the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Joseph Smith would record in his diary on March 12th of 1836, quote, I was informed today that a man by the name of Clark froze to death last night near this place who was under the influence of ardent spirits. Oh my God, how long will this monster in temperance find its victims on the earth? Methinks until the earth is swept with the wrath and indignation of God in Christ's kingdom becomes universal, O come, Lord Jesus, and cut short thy work in righteousness, end quote. So a man who was drunk froze to death, and this really troubles Joseph Smith. You can tell he really believes in this idea of temperance. And it's possible, based on contemporary claims like Alman Babbitt, who keeps showing up and breaking infractions of Word of Wisdom and accusing Joseph Smith of doing the same, that Joseph probably knew the effects because he struggled with them himself. Joseph incorporates this washing of the feet Often. I mean, there are many accounts of him washing the feet of the Quorum of the Twelve, repeatedly of his family members, and then ending with the bread and wine after fasting all day. Here is a recording in Joseph Smith's diary. 30th Wednesday morning, 8 o'clock, March 30th, 1836. According to appointment, the president... Presidency, the twelve apostles, the seventies, the high councils, the bishops, and their entire quorums of elders, and all the official members in the stake of Zion, amounting to about 300, met in the temple of the Lord to attend to the ordinance of washing feet. I ascended the pulpit and remarked to the congregation that we had passed through many trials and afflictions since the organization of this church. And that this is a year of jubilee to us and a time of rejoicing, and that it was expedient for us to prepare bread and wine sufficient to make our hearts glad, as we should not probably leave this house until morning. To this end, we should call on the brethren to make a contribution. The stewards passed round and took up a liberal contribution, and messengers were dispatched for bread and wine. Tubs, water, and towels were prepared, and I called the house to order, and the presidency proceeded to wash the feet of the twelve apostles, pronouncing many prophecies and blessings upon them in the name of the Lord Jesus. The brethren began to prophesy upon each other's heads and cursings upon the enemies of Christ who inhabit Jackson County, Missouri, continued prophesying, blessing, and sealing them with Hosanna and Amen until nearly seven o'clock p.m. The bread and wine was then brought in, and I observed that we had fasted all day, unless we... faint as a savior did, so shall we do on this occasion. We shall bless the bread and give it to the 12 apostles and they, to the multitude, after which we shall bless the wine and do likewise. While we were waiting for the wine, I made the following remarks. And then he goes on to say what he preached, end quote. This is important because I think people need to understand that, um, what is happening here is, They're fasting on empty stomachs, drinking a lot of wine of their own make, so we don't even know what the alcohol content is, and this is where things start to get rowdy in the temple. On December 3rd, 1836, Sidney Rigdon calls for a vote to, quote, discountenance the use entirely of all liquors from the church in sickness and in health except wine and sacraments and for external washing, and the vote was carried unanimously, end quote. So... There is pressure on people now, instead of temperance, to start giving it up completely. So that year, they really tried to incorporate it for sacrament and washing only. In the minutes in Kirtland, President Riggin- Rigdon called a vote on the church to discontinue the use entirely of it, and it was voted unanimously. And as we know, Sid- Sidney Rigdon had an opinion of abstinence rather than temperance. He was... he was um really pushing that on the church. The first mention we have in the history of the church using water instead of wine is April 3rd through the 6th of 1837, and this is where they hold a solemn assembly with the purpose of washing the feet, anointing, and receiving various instructions. Here, the church is talking about a lot of debts. There's $6,000 is still needed by members in Missouri, and 13000 is still needed for debts caused by the building of the Lord's House in Kirtland. So, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is passed using bread and water. So, this is the first time we see it mentioned that they're using water. In May of May 28, 1837, the, Joseph Smith says that the presidency of the church at Far West resolved unanimously not to fellowship any members of the church who will not observe the Word of Wisdom literally, So they start to um, say, you know, you're not going to be in fellowship with us if you're not taking it literally. And they mean this. Uh, John Whitmer, W.W. Phelps, Edward Partridge, Isaac Morley, and John Correll are authorized to sell far west lots for the church. And um, they're not going to fellowship anyone who is not taking a literal interpretation. They want all the elders to observe this. In June of eighteen thirty seven, Joseph Smith is sick and he's too sick to raise his head from the pillow to to say goodbye to anyone leaving on their missions. So while he's sick, enemies start to, you know, gossip and say he's suffering from a curse of God from you know, because his teachings from the church are against godliness. So he is given tinctures and wild herbs and things like that and his health is restored. November of 1837, Far West General Assembly votes to boycott stores that sell spirituous liquors, tea, coffee, or tobacco. We do know that Oliver Cowdery was said to drink tea three times a day for his health. David and John Whitmer drink coffee and tea, and they didn't consider them hot drinks. So they thought that their practice of drinking coffee and tea was in line with the Word of Wisdom. But in a Far West meeting in February of 1838, the whole church in Zion votes to remove David Whitmer, John Whitmer, and W.W. Phelps from their positions of presidents of the church in Missouri. David Whitmer is accused of persisting, quote, in the use of tea, coffee, and tobacco. All three men allegedly encouraged the sale of Jackson County lands, which is a transgression with Joseph Smith, had earlier declared a denial of our faith. And so, They start to have a problem with Joseph Smith over the land, but other members say, and they're drinking coffee and tea as well. After lengthy arguments, there's almost a unanimous vote to reject these three men as presidents. Whitmer and Phelps are accused of having used $1,400 of church funds to buy Missouri lands and sell them to saints for profit. They are also accused of having sold lands in Jackson County, which constituted of a denial of faith because of prophecies concerning the eventual return to Jackson County. David Whitmer was also charged with breaking the word of wisdom. Dun, dun, dun. In April of 1838, David Whitmer is excommunicated for, among other things, quote, writing letters to the dissenters in Kirtland unfavorable to the cause and to the character of Joseph Smith, Jr. He is also charged with possessing the same spirit with dissenters, failure to observe the word of wisdom. Neglecting meetings and signing his name to official Far West documents after being removed from the presidency there. end quote. Now we get into the conflict in Kirtland. The bank is starting to fail. There's land problems, the church is in debt. And so they really get taken upon, you know, all of this these external issues. And we see that people are being accused of word of wisdom infractions left and right. Lyman White was guilty of public drunkenness and is given a month to confess his sins. He's convicted of public intoxication by the high council and he confesses it's true. Along with all of this conflict over who is buying land and who's selling land, there is also the discussion of who can sell their their properties for profit and consecrate the rest of the church and who is going to sell liquor and stop the sale of liquor and petition to move the county seat uh, to Far West. Joseph Smith helps put a stop to selling liquors in the city of Far West. And he says that he does this so the streets aren't filled with drunkenness. And we can understand that people might be drinking a little bit more at this time. Everybody is struggling to survive financially. It's a very stressful time. In November of that year, General Wilson surrounds Adam on day Adam Black convenes a court of inquiry. Joseph and other prisoners in Independence start for Richmond with three guards who get drunk, and the prisoners take arms and horses, but apparently do not try to escape. So Joseph would have understand also the utility of getting guards drunk because they got drunk, but they didn't escape at this point. It's said that in April of 1839 in Gallatin, Missouri, Joseph Smith has a trial, and he commenced a trial that commences before a drunken grand jury and judge judge Morin visits him in Millport that evening and recommends they escape to avoid enduring persecution. The guards being drunk that night, um, Joseph Smith and his fellow prisoners made their escape, um, after a severe journey that they arrived in Quincy, Illinois on the 22nd of April, 1839. So because of the drunkenness of the jury and the soldiers after this little scuffle at Adam and Amen, Joseph Smith is able to escape. At the same time, we still have other saints talking in their journals about drinking certain things like Brigham Young. He talks about um, in 1839, his wife giving him a cup of tea that revived his spirits. This is an account from Brigham Young in October of 1839 from Brigham Young. Quote, On the 11th resu- resumed my journey in company with brother heber c kimball george albert george a smith theodore turley and brother kimball's father-in-law mr murray the brethren had exchanged horses at springfield and with a little assistance from the brethren there we obtained a two-horse wagon the sisters fitted me up in a bed in the wagon to ride on as i was unable to sit up we traveled eight miles and put up with the father Draper for the night. When we went into the house, Brother George A. Smith dropped onto the hearth a bottle containing some tonic bitters, which the brethren had prepared for us because of our sickness. At this, Father Draper was very much astonished and said, quote, "You are a pretty set of apostles to carry to be carrying a bottle of whiskey with you." We explained to him what it was. This appeased his righteous soul, so he consented to have us stay that night. End quote. Strangely enough, at this same time, we know that Joseph Smith receives a liquor license in Nauvoo. It seems at this time that perhaps the word of wisdom starts to lack as we get into the early 1840s, because William Clayton records several times in his journal about drinking hot drinks, drinking a pint of Porter with somebody, Porter's Ale, a dark brown beer. Clayton and his family drink you know this ale with with their dinner, and it's not a problem. In fact, he's even paid with um, a port, a pint of porter, and some raisins after helping a you know a neighbor who was in labor. He helps deliver this baby, and Sarah Perkins gives him a pint of porter and some raisins. He talks several times in his journal in 1840 about going to various places and getting paid with porter. He even had Sarah wash his head with rum on March 27, 1840. Brigham Young records something similar. In April 17, 1840, he talks about meeting Mother Moon's house where she presents him with a bottle of wine for us to bless and partake of. She kept the bottle of wine for 40 years and was waiting to give it to the apostles. And so the Brigham Young says, quote, This day the twelve blessed and drank a bottle of wine at Pen- Penworthen, made by Mother Moon 40 years before. It seems that as long as church members like William Clayton and Brigham Young are given alcohol in exchange for church service, it's seen as almost sacramental, right? It's seen as okay because it's given as part of their church service. By February 15th of 1841, Joseph Smith, as chairman of the Committee on Vending and Spiritist liquor, suggests a bill that would prohibit selling whiskey in smaller quantities than a gallon. After a long debate, it's passed. Joseph says, quote, I spoke at great length on the use of liquors and showed that they were unnecessary and operate as poison in the stomach. And the roots and herbs can be found to affect all necessary purposes. Joseph would begin to preach more and more that year at the pulpit on the science and practice of medicine. So he was really concerned with modern science and how, you know, what the temperance movement was suggesting. He records in his journal, quote, I preached to a large congregation at the stand on the science and practice of medicine, desiring to persuade the saints to trust in God when sick and not in the arm of the flesh and live by faith and not by medicine or poison. And when they were sick and had called for elders to pray for them, they were not healed to use herbs and mild food, end quote, quote. Joseph also gives a really interesting sermon in October of 1841, and this is recorded in the history of the church. In a discourse on fault-finding among the brethren, Smith tangentially comments upon the curse Noah laid upon Ham and states that the curse remains upon the posterity of Canaan until the present day. I refer to the curse of Ham for laughing at Noah while in his wine, but doing no harm. Noah was a righteous man, and yet he drank wine and became intoxicated. The Lord did not forsake him in consequence thereof, for he retained all the power of his priesthood. And when he was accused by Canaan, he cursed him by the priesthood which he held. And the Lord had respect to his word and the priesthood which he held, notwithstanding he was drunk. And the curse remains upon the posterity of Canaan until this present day. Quote. So Joseph, my speculation of this is Joseph is still calling for temperance. But he's surrounded by a bunch of people who are taking this very literally, as they've been asked to do, and they become teetotalers. They're not drinking or partaking at all, but they're seeing the brethren, the apostles doing this. So they're confused at what they see as hypocrisy. So Joseph Smith delivers this address talking about Noah getting drunk, and even though he was drunk, the Lord didn't curse him. This is followed up by another sermon in November of that year, where Joseph Smith has a meeting near the temple and joseph smith preaches that what many people called sin was not sin and he did many things to break down superstition and break it down he speaks about the curse of ham again and you know how noah was laughed at for wine but it did no harm so this idea that like if god didn't curse noah it's okay if i drink too I forgot to mention, because now we're getting into the Nauvoo period, I forgot to mention that in the Kirtland Temple, sometimes the sacramental wine, after they had sat there and drank it all day, got a little out of hand. And this is where we have the accounts that we talked about with William Smith and Joseph Smith, sometimes fights breaking out in the temple because people are drinking too much sacramental wine and they get fights in the Kirtland Temple, which I kind of love that story. So we're going back now to Nauvoo period. June 17th of 1842, William Law publishes a defense of the morality of the saints in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith comments on it saying, quote, There is no city that can compare with the city of Nauvoo. You may live in our city for a month and not hear an oath sworn. You may be here as long and not see one person intoxicated. So notorious are we for sobriety that... At this time, the Washington Convention passed through our city. The meeting was called for them, but they expressed themselves at a loss as what to say, as there were no drunkards to speak of, end quote. Again, it seems that Joseph Smith would have understood this as temperance because May 3rd of 1843, he records in his diary, quote, Drink a glass of wine with Sister Richards of her mother's make in England, end quote. So now we're into November of 1843, and this is where we have the famous story of Joseph Smith becoming violently ill as he's eating dinner, and this is where he's assuming that Emma Smith is trying to poison him. One of the things that kind of gets left out in that story is that he was drinking coffee. He thinks Emma Smith poisoned his coffee. At the prayer circle meeting that evening, he accuses her of doing so, and Brigham Young regards her shocked silence as proof of her guilt. However, according to Claire Barris, Joseph's rapid recovery from the illness suggests something other than poisoning, possibly ulcers. This is such a time of high conflict where polygamy comes to a head in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith is under a lot of a lot of stress. And it's in December of that year that Joseph Smith's manuscript diary makes the first mention of the Nauvoo mansion's bar room. Joseph Smith III later remarked that his father set up a fully stocked bar with Orrin Porter Rockwell as a bartender in this place. Joseph Smith records in his diary on December 15th, 1843, quote, Awoke this morning in good health, but soon suddenly seized with great dryness of mouth and throat and sickness of the stomach and vomited freely. My wife waited on me and, and assisted by my scribe, Dr. Levi Richards, who administered to me herb and mild drinks. I was never prostrated so low in a short time before, but my evening was considerably revived. Very warm, end quote. So he gets sick again, and he's revived by herbs. And this time he doesn't accuse it of poison. It's probably ulcers. By the end of December 1843, the church's newspaper, the Nauvoo neighbor, is advertising ale and beer sold from the Nauvoo brewery. So Joseph starts to see the utility in selling spirits, to not only outside Mormons, but, you know, Oren Porter Rockwell is in town. He's out of jail from Missouri, and he's helping Joseph with this enterprise. Wilford Woodruff records in his journal of, 18, of January 13, 1844, that the city council met and treated upon the subject of granting license for retailing liquors. Pre- President Smith addressed the council a number of times. The ordinance is passed in January by the Nauvoo City Council. It states, quote, Be it ordained by the City Council of the City of Nauvoo that the mayor of the city is hereby authorized to sell said liquors in such quantities as he may deem expedient. And the ordinance is signed by Joseph Smith, the mayor. Sometime before May 3rd, 1844, Augustine Spencer writes a letter charging Joseph Smith with drinking, swearing, carousing, and keeping six or seven young females as wives. Some... Or all of them may be true. We, we don't know. There's an interesting note in June of 1844 that Joseph in his manuscript diary says, quote, drink a glass of beer at Moisier's. Uh, Frederick G. Moser's grog shop is something that had opened up. And Joseph had earlier condemned this grog shop in a sermon in 1843. And when the manuscript history is published in the history of the church, this sentence is omitted without any indication. They just leave it out because it's kind of contradictory. Joseph makes several mentions in his diary at this point of drinking with some of his wives, drinking a glass of wine here or there, having a glass of beer. Now, if you know your dates, you're going to notice that we're getting towards the end of Joseph Smith's life. Of course, he would be killed in a gunfight in Carthage for charges relating to polygamy And one of the things that has affected the faith of a lot of Latter-day Saints is the fact that Joseph was drinking wine in Carthage. I've heard people say, well, they were only, you know, they had a sacrament. It was only for a sacrament. But here's a quote from John Taylor. John Taylor was in the room at the time. He said, quote, we sent for some wine. It has been reported by some that this was taken as a sacrament. It was no such thing. Our spirits were generally dull and heavy, and it was sent for to revive us. End quote. So they actually drank you know wine in Carthage. It was a stressful time. And as we see, you know, Joseph goes through this period of temperance. He's really policing other people, finds out it's harder to do than he realizes. And then really at some point, as he get into the 1843 and 1844, Joseph is drinking a lot more than he used to. I think he had other things to worry about and is with most people who are human and have coping mechanisms. They have stress. So it's shocking for people to find out that Joseph Smith drank. Especially when we have those early stories like I talked about where, you know, he's denying alcohol. Because the context for that story at the time means something completely different than it means now. You know, we are taught that Joseph denied alcohol because he never drank alcohol. And that's not true. Joseph drank alcohol a lot. He experienced being drunk quite a bit. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that throughout human history, there's a whole history with wine and beer and alcohol. Throughout humanity... Since humans have been alive, they've been doing this. And Joseph Smith got to experience that history and make it himself, and yet many of his followers today will never even participate in that history because of their current modern interpretations of the doctrine. So we're going to end this episode here, and we're going to have a second part where we talk about what happens to the Word of Wisdom after Joseph Smith's death. It's a really raucous history, but you need to know the beginnings of this to know sort of the, the roots of the word of wisdom. Mormons today have a really interesting discourse around it that I think is useful in modern Mormonism, but it's really not rooted in any historical accuracy. Joseph Smith saw it as part of the temperance movement. He saw it as a healthy guideline, but he absolutely used alcohol when he needed to. Like we said, he opened it up in the Nauvoo mansion. He opened up a bar and served alcohol, under his roof as the mayor of Nauvoo. He drank it many times and his friends drink it many times. So hopefully this episode will disabuse you of the notion that Joseph Smith always refrained from drinking. As we go on to the next episode, you're going to hear about Brigham Young's part in this. So thanks again for listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.